Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, and we'll consider a few points of many that I had for today, and we'll take the others up at another time. Luke chapter 1. While you're turning there, I want to remind you of what the Apostle Paul experienced when he went to the city of Athens. And it's what I hope will stir our hearts like it stirred his heart. You know, the Bible sets up several men as great in the sight of the Lord for their zeal. Phinehas did not hang back and stay in the prayer meeting while there was whoredom going on in Israel. He went into a tent and took a javelin and put it through the Israelite and the Moabite. And the Lord wrote a chapter about him, Numbers 25, and said that he would bless him forever. And he is set forth in Psalm 106 as being an example of justification by works through the zeal that he had for the Lord of hosts. Something stirred up Phinehas that wasn't stirred up in the other men around him. And Lord have mercy, stir up some of us. And if it be your great mercy, stir up all of us. But in Acts chapter 17, I know you're in Luke 30, you're in Luke chapter 1, but in Acts chapter 17, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. He went to the synagogues and took on the Jews. He went to the synagogues and took on the converted Gentile proselytes. He went to the marketplace and anyone that would consider the truth of the gospel, he was provoked and stirred in his spirit because he saw such rampant idolatry in the city of Athens. May the Lord bless us to be stirred in our spirits to want to stand for these landmarks, these ancient landmarks that our fathers have set in the faith. Let's consider a few of those landmarks and we'll go home. One of the landmarks that's been a landmark for 400 years you hold in your hands, and it's the King James Bible. We are a King James Bible church, not because King James means anything to us other than a king that God raised up to be the king of England. King James I of England, King James VI of Scotland, he was an unusual man. He did write a commentary on the book of Revelation by the age of 18. He did understand some things, but he was of the Church of England. We would say he was a baby-sprinkling heretic along with the rest of that church, although at that time, the little babies in the Church of England were dunked three times. They were dippers still, and they dipped their babies three times in the font. But we don't hold the King James Bible because of him. We hold the King James Bible because God has said he would preserve his words. And we want the preserved words. So when we look around and we believe God's promises, and you know I don't have time to preach on the King James Bible. I think a year and a half ago there was a long series of messages called The Battle for the Bible. You'll have to refer to that. I just want to remind you, this is one of the landmarks. See, and it's an ancient landmark. It's almost 400 years old. It's 395 years old. The men who used this book were different than the men who use other books today. No doubt about it. 
The men who use other books today do not have the same confidence and the same ability to argue at the word level from their books as you can from a King James Bible. There is internal integrity in the King James Bible that's been taken away in the eclectic, paraphrased versions that are so popular today. When a Rick Warren sits down to write his sermon or his sermon writers sit down to write his little sermonette for him, they consult online computers to pull word phrases from all 20 versions that he approves of for him to use. When you're using words from all different versions that no longer has internal word integrity because the Bible was written in such a way for you to be able to compare spiritual things with spiritual and see the Holy Spirit's use of a word. But when you change those words to men's words, you lose that internal integrity. That's just one evidence. There's many. In the battle for the Bible, there's over 50 reasons why we're King James Bible. And it's not based on manuscripts. We can go the manuscript route. Many men have, done, have put their labors into proving that the family of manuscripts from which the King James comes is the manuscripts of the churches of Jesus Christ as opposed to the dead scrolls that they found in St. Catherine's Monastery and the Pope's Library, which are their two favorite manuscripts, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. You know, 97.5% of all manuscripts back up the King James Bible. They go with two. They go with two that were never used. But that's not why. We hold the King James Bible by these simple means. Faith, fruit, facts, and fools. The The two most important are faith and fruit. God said He would preserve His words. He told Isaiah, now go write it in a book that it may be for the time to come forever and ever. He said, the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. He said, I will preserve my words from this generation forever. The Bible says that, so we believe it by faith. So that's faith. Whenever you bring up faith with the average, intelligent, educated Christian today, they mock it. Because they have more confidence in their scholarship than they do in faith. Faith is a lost mark in the churches today. We believe it by faith. And here's how you can reduce them to the same playing field. Ask them why they hold to a canon of 66 books. Ask any one of them why they hold to a canon of 66 books when the Catholics have a canon of 75 and there are a whole lot of other lost books of the Bible that are now out there and available. Why do they hold to 66? Is there manuscript evidence for 66? Is there some authoritative counsel that we can trust from a biblical standpoint for the 66? Is there any linguistic, historical, or any other basis for the 66 books? No. The only basis there is for the 66 books is fruit, which we believe by faith. Because for 2,000 years, the 66 books have been part of Bible-believing, baptized Christians that loved the Lord Jesus Christ and lived for Him and did not have any fear of man. They are reduced to our playing field. Faith and fruit. The only evidence that there is for 66 books that means anything is that God has blessed it. When we look at the King James Bible, we can read in a Bible that God's words are going to bear fruit wherever they go. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13 says that the Word of God works effectually. That man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. We can read how the Scriptures will bear fruit. And so when we look among the proliferation of English versions that exist now, we, see, we can see rather clearly that God has blessed the King James Bible to be associated with the vast majority of sincere, holy, righteous, faithful Christians over the last 400 years. The proliferation of new versions has been associated with a decline in Christianity and increase in compromise. So we look for fruit. Where has there been fruit? What Bible has been blessed with godly nations? What Bible has gone to various nations? And when it's been read and preached, those nations have been blessed. When pulpits preached this Bible, those churches were blessed. Those people were blessed. So by faith and fruit, we believe it's one of the ancient landmarks. There's 50 reasons why we believe it's an ancient landmark. I'm only giving you a couple. I said facts. The King James Version is internally pure. It is not corrupted like the modern versions. You take an NIV or a New King James Version or some of these new versions, they have such shoddy scholarship because the Lord blinded them as He promised He would, which is fools, my fourth point of 50 that I'm going to leave with you. It's not internally correct. And so it contradicts itself. You take a New King James Bible, and we recently recently preached through Galatians, In Galatians 3.16, it says every promise made to Abraham was made to Abraham and his seed in the Old Testament. You go to all the promises to Abraham in a New King James Bible in the Old Testament, and it said the promises were to his descendants. Sorry, the promises weren't to the descendants. They were to the seed of Abraham, and the seed of Abraham is the Lord Jesus Christ and all believers in him. Those are facts, and you know we've been through many more. How many Sundays did I stand up here and pass out 50 versions and we would go look at verses and find out that there's 50 Bibles standing against one Bible and all 50 of them together are worth nothing. Do you know why they keep printing a new one every six months? Because they know it's worth nothing and the only reason they were ever printed in the first place is to make money. That's why they're all copyrighted. The New King James Version is not because Thomas Nelson loves you and wants you to have the truth and doesn't want the ancient landmarks removed. He wanted to increase his income statement. And so they came up with a new King James Version. It's not the King James, and it's not new. It took all of its changes from the other versions. It's a corrupt racket out there. Those men are not God-fearing, Bible-loving men. They're in it for the business. Go into a Thomas Nelson store and find out what else they're selling. They sell Catholic Bibles right alongside a new King James Version. They're not interested in the truth. They're interested in dollars and cents. They're a publishing house. The King James Bible. Children, do not leave this Bible until God makes it manifestly plain that He has replaced it, and we see no evidence of that because we are living in the last days of the perilous times. This is most likely the last Bible the world's going to see that it can trust. There is no Greek or Hebrew that you can trust. As soon as you depart from the English, it means that you know far less of what you're talking about when you start talking about Greek and Hebrew. And there are as many Greek and Hebrew versions as there are English versions. So why would you even want to enter that battle? Once you say you want to deal with the original Greek and the original Hebrew, you've got the same proliferation of many versions. 
whether it's Stephanus or Erasmus or Nestle's or, or UBS's or anyone else's Greek version, you're going to end up with the same problem except you don't know the language. And neither do they who say they do because it's a dead language. The Bible was written in a form of Greek that hasn't been spoken or written in so long, they're guessing at it. You have all the same problems. We don't go there. We believe and trust the English Bible, and God has blessed the English Bible where it has been preached to English people, where those English people have believed it, and God has blessed it where that English Bible has been translated into other languages. We hold the King James Bible. There's been so much preached before on that, and there's no way I can do it here. Those are just a few reminders. One of the ancient landmarks is we've got to have a source for preaching. When it says preach the Word, we can't preach some paraphrase. We can't preach the message of Ricky Warren. Are you kidding me? Do you know where the message came from? That's a novel about the Bible. That isn't a Bible. That's like the Living Bible of 1970. A Chicago businessman wrote it on his way to work every morning on the train. That's not a Bible. It's a novel about the Bible. It's a paraphrase. Those aren't God's words. Those are men's words. We want every word of God. We want to be able to go look at the life of Ahaziah and find out that in one place he was 22 years old when he became king. In another place he was 42 years old when he became king. Their scholarship is so shoddy in all the new versions. I've taught you all this before. They changed the 42 to 22 so that they don't have a contradiction. By doing so, they lose some precious wisdom that God left for us there. Ahaziah was 22 years old, and he was 42 years old in the reign of his father-in-law, Omri. That's a whole sermon. Remember, there's three kings missing from the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1. There's only one way to figure out why, why those three kings are missing. It's to have a Bible that says Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king and 42 years old when he became king, and then to rightly divide the word of truth and find out what he's talking about, it tells you why three of those kings God didn't consider kings. Because they were imposters from the line of Jezebel and Ahab. But they change it. By changing it, they've lied to you. First of all, they say the originals are the most important thing to us. All Hebrew manuscripts in the world have 22 and 42, So they change the original whenever it serves their purpose. Second of all, none of them can explain why the three kings are missing in Matthew chapter 1. And we could go on and on and on. God has revealed his truth to his babes. The King James Bible is a book of babes. It's the simple little people that fill the churches of Baptist churches that believe this book. This book is not popular in seminaries because it's not the book of the scribes and the textual critics. That should tell you enough right there. Jesus said, Father, I thank Thee that Thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them to babes. I want the Bible of the babes. I don't want the Bible of the scholars. The Bible of the scholars cannot be the truth. Jesus Jesus promised in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 through the Apostle Paul, I will make foolish the wisdom of this world. Where is the scribe? Now, what's a scribe? What's his job? It's to copy Scripture. A scribe is dealing in Scriptures. God says, where is the scribe? He's mocking them. Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? What's a disputer? He's a textual critic that wants to sit in judgment on God's Word. Why not preach it instead of judging it? We've had it. God says, where is the scribe? 
Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? That's what we believe. Children, the King James Bible. The King James Bible. Not the New King James Version. Not the New International Version. Not the Message. Not the Teen Power Bible. Not the Harley Motorcycle Bible. Not the Reader's Digest Condensed Bible. Not the Cotton Patch Version. The King James Bible. That's the first landmark we want you to hold to. You're in Luke chapter 1. Verse 35. Precious verse. Mary has been confronted by the angel Gabriel and told that she is about to have the Lord Jesus Christ. And she's to call His name Jesus. You can see that in verse 31. He's the prophesied son of David. He's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. There's going to be no end to His kingdom. Mary says in verse 34, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. We believe that verse. The holy thing that was born of Mary is the Son of God. Before Mary had that baby, there was no Son of God. There was Jehovah God. There was the Word of God. There was the Holy Spirit of God. Those three are given to us in the Bible. Those three are one. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost are one. John chapter 1 and verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We believe that. The Word was not a begotten God. The Word was not a God. The Word was not a Son. The Word was God. This is the true deity of Jesus Christ. The minute that you say that Jesus in His divine nature became a Son in eternity, who in the world was His Father and who in the world was His Mother? And in what sense is He a Son? And where is eternal generation taught in the Bible? That is paganism. And it's in almost every church creed. We don't have... There's whole sermons on that subject. It's on our website. Here's what we believe. And do you know what? Almost every saint in almost every pew believes exactly what we believe. You have to go to seminary to learn the error. The people in the pew, if you were to say to them, Who is the Son of God? They would say, Jesus of Nazareth. And we would shout, Amen! Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. On what grounds did Philip baptize the eunuch? When the eunuch said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that's what we believe. Before Jesus Christ was born, there was no little boy named Jesus. God did not have a son. God fathered a son through Mary. And that being had two natures. He was all man and He was all God. He was not all man and a begotten God. See, that's what you learn in seminary. He wasn't all God. He was a begotten God. He was an eternally generated God. He was a God if you go far enough. They don't like that. But now, see, if you look at a New American Standard Version, in John 1.18, the New American Standard Version will say, the only begotten God. We know what the Bible says. Jesus is the only begotten Son. He's not a begotten God. The New American Standard is crazy. That's blasphemy. There is no begotten God. God has never been begotten in any way, shape, or form at any time. 
by any stretching of any words. God is the eternal, self-existent, I am that I am. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal, self-existing, I am that I am in His divine nature. So we have fully God joined with fully man in one man called the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son of God. Let me tell you something. This point that I am telling you, if you don't appreciate it, you do not understand church history. This has sent men to their death for believing the incarnate sonship of Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus Christ is a son by His incarnation through the womb of Mary. He was not eternally generated in the past by some mysterious process of eternal generation. That's what they say about it because there's no verses for it. The number one audio sermon website in the world is loosely affiliated with Bob Jones University and is called www.sermonaudio.com. They have a statement of faith about this long that you have to sign in order to have your sermons on that website. We can't go there. Do you know why we can't go there? Because out of a confession of faith that long, one of them is you have to believe that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Now listen very carefully. Children, this, this, is, this is a little... It's not really that complicated. Right. Jesus didn't exist until 2,000 years ago. Right. In His combined nature of the God-man, He existed as God from the very beginning. He was Jehovah. Right. He was I am that I am. And then He took on human flesh 2,000 years ago when it says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the first time God had a Son. John 1.14, John 1.18. We believe this. Men have died for it. If I try to get our sermons on sermonaudio.com, can't do it. There's primitive Baptists there. There's Calvinists there. There's Presbyterians there. Oh, they'll take all sorts as long as they believe in the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. The Jehovah's Witnesses love the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ because they know this. If God was eternally generated in the past, then He's a begotten God. If He's a begotten God, He's only a God. He's not the God. And there, those people give them the candy stick they've always wanted. The Jehovah's Witnesses of our time are only 150 years old. Charles Taze Russell founded them 150 years ago in that terrible 19th century that was the spawning bed for so many denominations and cults. But there was a man 1,500 years before him called Arius. Arius was just like Charles Taze Russell. He read Origen's writings, and if you, go to, if you go to seminary, Origen is set up as a great hero. Origen's the first one that wrote about the eternal generation of the Son. No one had ever thought about it before. No one had ever taught it. It's impossible to believe. Who was his mother? If he was eternally generated as a son, and God became a father by this eternal generation process, who was his mother? I mean, it was just ridiculous. Origen conceived the idea and wrote about it, a man named Arius came along and said, if God generated a son in his divine nature, then he's a begotten God. And if he's a begotten God, he's only a God. He's not the God. Does that sound familiar? Did I just say that a minute ago? That's exactly what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. And that's what Arius believed. He was just consistent with Origen's doctrine. 
They had the Council of Nicaea in 325 to try to clear all this up. They condemned Arius, but I want to tell you, Arius was the most righteous man there as far as being consistent with what Origen had written. They should have taken Origen, condemned him as a heretic, and burned all his writings. Amen. Do you know how much the man understood the Bible? There are some men that make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He went home and took a knife out of the kitchen drawer and made himself a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Now that is not very good understanding of the Bible. If you think I'm kidding, just go home and Google it, you know? There's one wonderful thing about the Internet. I can never say anything anymore that's related to history or anything that you can't go home and check out immediately. That's origin. They should have condemned him as a heretic and burned his writings. Let me keep going about the eternal sonship. Do you understand the difference? If you go and learn a creed, if you go learn a creed of most churches, they've copied them from 325. They've copied them from the Catholic Church. And it says, God of God, very God of very God, Light of light. Life of life. What they're saying is, there was God and He begat the second person in the Godhead. He generated the second person in the Godhead. We don't believe any of that. We believe there is an eternal God. His name is Jehovah. He is I am that I am. I was never begotten. I have never beget. I am God. I am independently self-existent and I need no one or anything. That's the God we believe in. And He had a son 2,000 years ago named Jesus of Nazareth. And He joined that son. And that's the Son of God. The God-man. Fully God. Fully man. Not a begotten God. God. The Word of God made flesh. We believe that. The battle over the definitions that I just gave you have been fought for 2,000 years. In the 1850s, all the Baptists in Great Britain split on this point. They became the Gospel Standard Baptists, Strict Baptists. What did the Gospel Standard believe? Jesus is the eternally generated Son of God. A great line came down through the nation of England just 150 years ago. This subject is very important. On this point. We have known ministers in our past who have been excluded and condemned for taking a stand on this subject. Let me go one better. 1553. 1553, there's a Presbyterian city in the world. Where is it located? Geneva, Switzerland. Who's its mayor, commander, general, and preacher all at once? John Kelvin. There's a man named Michael Servetus. He's 42 years old. He's brilliant. It has nothing to do with truth. But he is brilliant. He discovered pulmonary circulation in the body. He was a physician. He could read and write in several languages. He was brilliant, but that doesn't have anything to do with it. The man created some problems for himself. He wrote a couple of documents. One, a few questions and problems with the Trinity. Now, we believe in the Trinity, but we don't believe the Trinity the way they define it. Do you know how they get a Trinity? God number one had a son named God number two, and God number one and two get together and have a, have a spirit named God the Holy Spirit, and he eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. He wrote a few questions about that saying, no way. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the Son of God. There was no eternal generation or anything like that. That didn't make him friends. The Catholics condemned him to death. 
And, the, and Kelvin wrote to his best friend and said, if he ever comes to, G, to Geneva, he'll never leave alive. Second track he wrote. Listen to this one. Infant baptism is of the devil. Amen. Does that sound familiar? Infant baptisms of the devil. Do you know what they called it then? Blasphemy. To say that infant baptism is of the devil. So he had two marks against him. He was captured in Geneva. Why in the world he went to Geneva? He'll have to answer for that. He sat into one of John Kelvin's sermons. He was captured and he was condemned to death. And John Kelvin, the Presbyterian, burned a man at the stake named Michael Servetus in 1553 for two reasons. He opposed infant baptism and he believed that Jesus Christ was the incarnate Son of God like we do and denied their eternal generation. As they led him to the stake, this 42-year-old man said, O Jesus, Thou Son of the Eternal God, have mercy on me. We say, Amen. They would have let him go free if he would have said, O Jesus, Thou Eternal Son of God, have mercy on me. He defied them on his way to his death, and they all understood it. Because that's how they recorded those words. They knew it was his final act of defiance. O Jesus, thou son of the eternal God, have mercy on us. We believe in the eternality of God. And we believe that Jesus in his divine nature is eternal. But Jesus as the God-man, our mediator, our high priest, the man Jesus of Nazareth had a beginning 2,000 years ago because only then was God made flesh in the form of our Savior. In his divine nature, Jehovah uncompromised in any way. In his human nature, fully man, tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. I present to you a glorious Savior that you can't learn about at seminary. Because they want to hold to old men like Origen and Roman Catholic fathers instead of just the plain words of Scripture. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. Not until Jesus of Nazareth had we ever witnessed the perfections of God in a man, and it was the man, Christ Jesus. Fully God and fully man. If they say, you're denying the Trinity with that doctrine, oh no, we have a pure Trinity. You have a created one that God, number one, eternally generated a son. God, number two, and the two of them got together and eternally give process to the Holy Spirit. They'll say, you're denying the deity of Jesus Christ. Oh, no, you have a begotten God. Go read it in your New American Standard Version in John 1.18. We have the infinite God of heaven, Jehovah himself. I am that I am in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the full deity of Jesus Christ. And it's not, it's not for us to be against them. They've made it against us. They've persecuted us. They've driven ministers out of churches in our lifetime. You children, I hope you understand the few minutes I just took on that subject. God did not have a son until Jesus was born. God was God. There's no begotten God. How can you beget God? 
The two words don't even go together. Eternal generation doesn't go together. Generation is an act of time of giving birth to someone. Eternity means there is no time. It's all made up mumbo jumbo. But let me tell you, hold to a King James Bible and you can tear them to shreds. Watch this. Is there any combination in the Bible of the words eternal son? No. Nowhere is he called the eternal son. Is there an expression in the Bible that says everlasting father? Amen. Yes. You know that verse, don't you? Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor. The Mighty God. Not a begotten God like the New American Standard. The Mighty God. The Everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. When the words Everlasting Father are used in the Bible, they are a name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is so much God. He is the Everlasting Father. Not some other God that begat Him. The Everlasting Father is a title of our Mediator. The Lord Jesus Christ. You say, why is that in the Bible? It's for His little sheep that are willing to believe this simple message. Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God. Not some eternally generated figment of someone's imagination. And men have suffered for that. Baptist split. The New American Standard Version. We can't even get our sermons on sermon audio. The Jehovah's Witnesses love it. John Gill, the great Baptist theologian, wrote a work entitled The Controversy of the Sonship of Jesus Christ, taking it century by century from the very beginning to his day in the 18th century. Now, of course, he held the wrong position on it because he held the London Confession of Faith. The London Confession of Faith copied the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith had copied the Catholic creeds because they were proud of their mother. Presbyterians, see, have always traced their origin back to the Church of Rome. They're proud of it. So are the Lutherans. So are the Methodists. They don't mind at all tracing back to Rome. See, we don't go to Rome. We go into the mountains and caves of Wales and find there a group of people that didn't care what the creed said. They just knew that the Bible had testified that the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also... Because of that divine operation, therefore that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. We believe it. And we get baptized in the name of that wonderful doctrine. I've already dealt so much with baptism. I'll just leave you with the third landmark just just a couple minutes. Children, we believe, we hold to a landmark called believer's baptism. That means you can't get baptized till you're a believer. And when you're baptized, you're buried underwater. You are lowered beneath the water and you are raised up again out of that water as a picture of what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did for us to wash us from our sins. The Bible tells us that. You know I've preached whole sermons on baptism. You know that when Jesus was baptized, He went down into the Jordan River with John the Baptist and was baptized. Do you know that Jesus was a Baptist because he was baptized by a Baptist? Mary was a Baptist because she was baptized by a Baptist. You all know that the Bible calls him a Baptist for one reason. Not because it has a nice ring to it and the proper number of syllables to go with a one-syllable first name. He's called John the Baptist because he was John the Dipper. He dipped the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Why was he bat- Orville? Why did John the Baptist baptize in Anan, which was a little town near to Salem? And there was much water there. Well, what in the world would you need much water for unless you were going to per- put a person under? Why in the world did the Ethiopian eunuch say to Philip, See, here is water. Did he say that when he saw an oasis? Or did he say that when he picked up his canteen? See, here is water. He saw an oasis. He said, Philip, look at there's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? If thou believest, thou mayest. I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And what did they do? They got down out of the chariot. Now, why did they get down out of the chariot? Why didn't Philip just spit in his face? Rub it around with his thumb in the form of a cross and call it a baptism. Catholics do it all the time. Why did he take his canteen and throw a little water at him? Why did they get down out of the chariot and then they both went down to the water, then they both came up out of the water? But my faith, you know, and then Philip went on his way by express transportation by the Holy Spirit of God and was preaching in Azotus and the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. He had a smile on his face as he was riding along going back to Ethiopia because he'd been baptized the Bible way in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ down in the water. My favorite verse, though, is 1 Peter 3.21, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Baptism is a figure corrupted in modern Bible versions. 1 Peter 3.21 is the most definitive. That means it says the most about baptism of any verse in the Bible. But in 1 Peter 3.21, in all modern versions of the Bible, the verse has been corrupted three different ways to deny three doctrines about baptism. The like figure. No longer is baptism a figure in the new versions. The ark has become a figure of baptism. But 1 Peter 3.21 in our Bible says that baptism itself is a figure. And what is it a figure of? Well, if you skip the part that's in parentheses in that verse, it says the like figure whereunto baptism doth also now save us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We bury a person in water. We raise them back up out of the water in a figure of what Jesus Christ did for us and what He's going to do for us. The like figure. Baptism is a figure. And then it says, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. They changed that to read, not the putting away of the dirt of the body. Well, no one in their right mind ever thought that baptism was to wash your body clean. But they change it, not the putting away of the dirt of your body, because that little, st- that little statement in our Bibles that says, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, means that baptism can't save you. Right. Baptism doesn't wash away sins. But they all believe that. Catholics, Episcopalians, they believe that you are washed away from your sins, Lutherans, and that you are born again by that baptism. And see, in our little verse that we love, 1 Peter 3.21, it says, not the putting away of the filth of flesh. Then it says, baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God. What do their Bibles say? Baptism is the request of a good conscience. Request for a good conscience from God. Can you believe that? Here comes a parent. They look at 1 Peter 3.21. They say, well, baptism isn't a figure of anything, so as long as we get some water involved, it's good enough. It doesn't put away the dirt of the body, so we can go ahead and do it and trust it to put away the the sins of the soul of this baby. And then, because it's just a little baby, I'm asking God, on behalf of this child, as its godfather and godmother, that during time it will be born again, or it will be born again right now, and God will give it a good conscience. That's what they do with that verse, totally corrupting it. I hope you're able to follow me. I'm going, I'm going too fast. There's articles on the website about every one of these points. But they are landmarks that we cannot stay away from. We must hold to them. 
1 Peter 3.21, baptism is a figure. What's it a figure of? It's a figure, a picture, a metaphor, a symbol of the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It doesn't put away the filth of the flesh. It does not help our fleshly sin nature at all. It is the answer toward God of a good conscience. Meaning it has to be a believer that has a functioning conscience, which conscience has been made good by hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ so that it believes that sins have been washed away and with that good conscience wants to answer God for the good things God has done for it by sending Jesus Christ to pay for its sins. So baptism can only be a believer, doesn't put away sins, and is a figure. It has to be immersion. It has to be dipping. Children! Matthew? Your father and I are going on a long journey soon. You better be faithful and hold to the Bible doctrine of baptism. We baptize by immersion. We baptize in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, believers only. And we hold 1 Peter 3.21 as it's recorded in our King James Bibles. That one verse alone should be able to show somebody what's been done in these modern versions. That one verse. The corruptions that are there. Michael Servetus, burnt at the stake by John Calvin, a Presbyterian. Listen, the Reformers do not love us. That is why William and Elisha Screvin had to name their church Anti-Pado-Baptist Church of Christ because they had been persecuted by the Congregationalists in Maine, in our own country, put in prison for holding to the doctrine of Bible baptism. It's an ancient landmark which our fathers have set, and we have to be faithful to it. What has the First Baptist Church of Greenville done in the last couple of years? The First Baptist Church of Greenville. It's the one that looks like a Catholic church on Ferris Road next to Greenville Tech. You know, they're Arminians. They say their whole interest in life is to fulfill the Great Commission and save souls. I wonder how many souls are going to go to hell because of the millions they spent on building a Catholic church to house a Baptist congregation. But let's not deal with that point. Let's deal with their recent ruling as a church that they don't care how you were baptized. You can come to them as a sprinkled baby and it's good enough for them. When a Baptist church does that, does your spirit get stirred at all? Do you feel like you're in Athens and the, holy, the whole city is given to idolatry? Do you want to get in the marketplace and dispute with someone? I hope you do. In our town, the First Baptist Church said we don't care. As long as they got some water applied, it's good enough. And that's what's happening to these Baptist churches that have moved as far as they can toward accommodating everyone. I say all that. We have three things that I've just covered. King James Bible. Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son of God. God did not have a son until Jesus of Nazareth was born. And He was God in the flesh. Fully God. Not a begotten God. Not a God. Fully God. Fully man. And that we believe in baptism in His name for believers only by immersion, burial, and resurrection from water. One little tiny point. I love 1 Corinthians 15:29. I was shamed by two Mormon preachers, missionaries, in the first six months of my ministry when they attacked me with 1 Corinthians 15:29, and I didn't know what to do with it. That verse reads, Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? They challenged me and said, we don't believe that your church is practicing the whole New Testament. I said, try me. My father was watching. 
They brought up 1 Corinthians 15, 29, and I was speechless. I didn't have an answer for them. But you know what? Baptists are the only ones that have an answer for that text. Amen. What's 1 Corinthians 15 talking about? The resurrection of the dead. Paul is saying, what in the world are you people getting baptized in a picture of death and resurrection if you don't believe in a resurrection? You're just showing a picture of death. Only a Baptist can answer that verse. What shall they do which are baptized for the dead? For a picture of the resurrection of the dead. If you go look at it now, it says so simple. Only a Baptist can handle it. Matthew Henry, the most popular commentator in the world, he's a Presbyterian. When he comes to 1 Corinthians 15, 29, I've told you this before. I hope you can remember it. He lists nine reasons, nine explanations that could, that could explain 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Of course, he doesn't use the Baptist explanation because that would implicate him. He uses nine others and he gets to the bottom. It takes a whole page. Very unusual for him to write that long on one verse. He says, one th- I don't know what it means. There's only one thing we can know for sure. The Corinthians understood him. That's sad. That's sad. You know, once we go into the Bible as little people, the babes of Jesus Christ, Jesus went down to the water, he came up out of the water. The eunuch went down to the water, came up out of the water, and Philip went down to the water with him in order to get him baptized down in the water and came up. We're just simple little babes. We believe that baptism is by dipping and immersion. So when we go to 1 Corinthians 15, 29, and we know that the whole chapter is talking about resurrection from the dead, we know that that baptism for the dead, if the dead rise not, why are they then baptized for the dead? We know that it's a picture of the dead being raised up by Jesus Christ. Because we're Baptists, we can answer that verse. Sarah, the King James Bible, Jesus Christ is the Son of God by His miraculous virgin birth of Mary, and baptism is only for believers and only by immersion. You are going to be a grandmother someday. You make sure that your family and your children, with your husband's leadership, do not remove the ancient landmarks which your fathers have set. And your two grandfathers are in here, and we both agree. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.